Good morning. Welcome to our Tuesday 11th hour lecture. If you have not had a chance to do so, please silence your cell phones. In preparing this introduction for Michael Norris's lecture, titled Metaphor as Building Block, Idea to Image, Image to Idea, I considered several sort of seemingly disparate ideas about the importance of image and metaphor in literary creative writing. And so I have this hypothesis. And these ideas really do seem disparate, bear with me. In the 1980s, Italian scientists discovered that one monkey simply watching another monkey in action, for example, grasping a peanut, would have the same motor neurons fired as if he himself were the monkey grasping the peanut, a kind of literal empathy through observation. A number of similar studies have been done since on human subjects and on all of the five senses seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And they found that humans are like monkeys in this way. If I watched my friend put her nose to a container of sour milk and she cringed, even if I didn't visually cringe, my olfactory neurons would fire as if I myself had smelled the container. Um, scientists have coined these empathy neurons mirror neurons. So what does this mean for readers and writers? In October of 2013, the New York Times put out an article that reported new research. People who read literary writing, as opposed to popular fiction or serious nonfiction, performed better on tests measuring empathy, social perception, and emotional intelligence. And so this made me think about what separated literary writing from, well from for example, a well-researched, well-written article published in the New York Times. I think, simply put, it's the writer's reliance, or the author's reliance, on metaphor, image, and the use of the five senses. This tool of image becomes the important tool that we have as a creative writer, attempting to convey some aspect of our human condition. Through these images, we can gift our readers an empathic experience, transport them to new places, indeed, new worlds. And we're so lucky to have a lecture, to hear a lecture on this very subject today. Michael Morse received his MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop. He has received fellowships from the Fine Arts, Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, the McDowell Colony, and Yaddo. His poems have appeared in publications such as A Public Space, The Iowa Review, Plowshares, and he has been anthologized in Best American Poetry. He is the author of the poetry co collection Void and Compensation, published this year by Canarium Books. Michael Morris has taught at the University of Iowa and the New School, and he currently teaches at the Ethical Culture Fieldston School in New York. Please join me in welcoming him now. Can you guys hear me? Mic's working. Good. All right. Thanks for coming out. Feast or famine in these rooms. Air conditioning, excessive one day, gone the next. So I hope you'll bear with it. Um, Let's do this. So many gadgets. Just kidding me. Yes. Yeah. Right. We might not even need this till the end. Um, so thanks, Jen, for the intro. And thank you all for being here and coming out. Um, one um, interesting thing that uh, Jen's intro made me think about is a couple of years ago, some Stanford psychologists did a study where they presented groups of people with crime figures, crime statistics from, from a fictional town, a fictional city. Um, and in one of the descriptions of the crime, they, des they described it, they used a metaphor uh, for the crime. They, they kept calling it a beast. Crime is a beast. And in the other, with another group, same exact crime statistics, they used the metaphor that crime was a virus. And what was very interesting, the exact same, exact same statistics in both studies, um, the people for whom the, the, the criminality had been described as a beast were overwhelmingly in favor of using enforcement as a way of, of, of treating that, right, of, of redressing that issue. And whereas the virus, where it was described as a virus, that group with the same exact crime statistics basically felt that education reform was the, was the proper way to go in terms of how you redress those things. So metaphor is not just simply something that um, 
you know, the, the, this nice ornamentation that makes our writing better. It actually helps focus how we think and we feel about things. I'm yeah? Going, I'm going to interrupt you because you're, you're images all over your body and face. <laughs> I think that, mu that must look kind of cool. <laughs> all right, thank you for letting me know. That's the technological equivalent of like, you know, when you have a piece of food on your chin. <laughs> you're the one I want to go to dinner with because you're going to tell me. Thank you. All right, that's better, right? We probably won't need that till the end anyway. So thank you for letting me know. All right. Um, so today's topic, yes, it's metaphor as, as building block, idea to image and image to idea. Some of you were walking in during Jen's intro. There are packets that are up near the top near both um, doors. So you'll, you'll need a packet. You'll need a handout, okay? Um, so... You'll notice the, uh, the cartoon from uh, BC on the cover of your, of your handout. Um, Go tell her her eyes are a shimmering moonlit pond. Her hair is the tenderness of moss draped on sinewy branches. And her lips are the kiss of a soft breeze upon the moist earth of twilight. And in our game of telephone, our messenger then says, you remind him of a swamp. <laughs> Metaphor and simile at its finest. Um, so I would just say that, that uh, in, the, in the text box, it's in the, about a quarter of the way down that page, sort of a statement uh, about metaphor, about the way, we, the, the way we engage with the world. I feel like we're constantly seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching things in the world, and we inevitably end up comparing what we sense with other things. Um, these comparisons, seeing one thing as another, are at the heart of poetic making, um, any kind of making, whether you're here doing nonfiction, poetry, or fiction, I think. And that working minds generally tend to move from sensory perception into realms of, of thinking and feeling, and metaphor is, is often that bridge. There are a bunch of quotes that are, that are on this page that I'm going to let you peruse on your own. There's, there's way too much in here to cover, um, but I just wanted to give you those for some future thought. There's one quote that's not on here that I love, and it's Charles Simic, and he says that the mind of a poet is more like a town dump than a library. <laughs> I love that. So you're dealing with the town dump today and not the library. Um, one of the things, when I was a kid, we often, in gym class, we had this very strange activity called the shuttle run where we had to sort of start from a set point, run out to either a cone or an eraser or something and touch it, run back to the beginning, and then run out to a more distant object. It kind of reminds me of what goes on in our minds when we make that comparison. If I say to you, a liar is like an egg in midair, you sort of think for a minute, and you do that shuttle run, you do that mental shuttle run, you sort of like liar, egg in midair, oh, okay, I get it, so potentially going to be caught and saved, or you're going to get revealed, things are going to get broken. So that shuttle run is some of the stuff that we're going to do today. Um, Anne Carson on page two of your packet has this poem, even though it's called Essay on What I Think Most, and I think it's an interesting way to think about metaphor. Um, She's, I'm going to start reading this in a second, but she talks about, oh, she talks about this word error, right? And, and if we go back and we look at the roots of the word error, we think of it as mistake, right? Um, but it also has this link to errare in Latin, which means to wander. And if you think of a kind of nightly wandering without necessarily a mission in mind, you sort of stumble upon whatever your ethical mission might be, there's something that's very um, refreshing and rewarding and inviting about that for me. As somebody who often doesn't sit down and, you know, I don't know where I'm going when I look at a blank page. So that idea of error, of errare, to wander, to find, to stumble across what it is you're looking for is kind of an interesting concept, I think. So here's Carson. Error and its emotions. On the brink of error is a condition of fear. In the midst of error is a state of folly and defeat. Realizing you've made an error brings shame and remorse. Or does it? Let's look into this. Lots of people, including Aristotle, think error an interesting and valuable mental event. In his discussion of metaphor in the rhetoric, Aristotle said there are three kinds of words, strange, ordinary, and metaphorical. 
Strange words simply puzzle us. Ordinary words convey what we know already. It is from metaphor that we can get hold of something new and fresh. In what does the freshness of metaphor consist? Aristotle says that metaphor causes the mind to experience itself in the act of making a mistake. He pictures the mind moving along a plain surface of ordinary language when suddenly that surface breaks or complicates. Unexpectedness emerges. At first it looks odd, contradictory, or wrong. Then it makes sense. And at this moment, according to Aristotle, the mind turns to itself and says, how true, and yet I mistook it. From the true mistakes of metaphor, a lesson can be learned. Not only that things are other than they seem, and so we mistake them, but that such mistakenness is valuable. Hold on to it, Aristotle says. There is much to be seen and felt here. Metaphors teach the mind to enjoy error and to learn from the juxtaposition of what is and what is not the case. I love that. Mark Doty has a wonderful poem that's on page three, the next page. And you'll, you'll, you'll listen, you'll hear this, this, this wandering that he does in order to find what will suffice in order to capture this object that he's interested in, that he's looking at. Um, this is called Difference. The jellyfish float in the bay shallows like schools of clouds, a dozen identical. Is it right to call them creatures, these elaborate sacks of nothing? All they seem is shape and shifting, and though a whole troop of undulant cousins go about their business within a single wave's span, everyone does something unlike. This one a balloon open on both ends, but swollen to its full expanse. This one a breathing heart, this a pulsing flower. This one a rolled condom or a plastic purse swallowing itself. That one a Tiffany shade, this a troubled parasol. This submarine opera's all subterfuge in disguise. Its plot, a fabulous tangle of hiding and recognition, nothing but trope, nothing but something forming itself into figures, then refiguring, sheer ectoplasm, recognizable only as the stuff of metaphor. What can words do but link what we know to what we don't, and so form a shape? which shrinks or swells, configures or collapses, blooms even as it is described into some unlikely marine chiffon, a gown for Isadora, nothing but style. What binds one shape to another also sets them apart, but what's lovelier than the shape-shifting transparency of like and as, clear, undulant words, we look at alien grace, unfettered by any determined form, and we say balloon, flower, heart, condom, opera, lampshade, parasol, ballet. Hear how the mouth, so full of longing for the world, changes its shape. Love that poem. Um, so this doubleness, right, this doubleness of seeing, if you turn to page four, um, There's all sorts of goofy stuff on that page. Um, in the top right corner, though, there's this excerpt from a Thomas Hardy poem that I love. He's, he's, um, he's at the gravesite of, of somebody that he had a crush on when he was younger, um, who has since died, of course. Uh, and there's this line, there are these lines in the poem, and the fair girl long ago whom I often tried to know may be entering this rose. And that doubleness, right, that going back and forth, that A and B of the metaphoric sort of construct, construct here, you, you can imagine that biologically speaking, indeed, she may be in the rose because she is the nutrient now that feeds the rose. But then we still imagine the girl as if whole, fully formed, walking in as if she were walking into this auditorium. Or at least we imagine that when we're stepping into the shoes of the lyric speaker. So that doubleness there is something that adds some resonance to the poetry. And obviously in the box that's right below that uh, on the page, um, we probably we might not be reading Shakespeare if instead of you know if, if instead of saying oh full of scorpions is my mind dear wife if he simply said if Macbeth simply said I have a lot to worry about I have much to worry about 
Or if poor Lear said, I often change my mind, but no. He says, I am a feather for each wind that blows. Amazing how our minds can ricochet back and forth, agile, like with, with good language like that. Um, so um, when, we, when we start talking about metaphor, I'm going to try to project something and maybe it won't be on my face. I don't think put this poem. So you have some paper and something the right way. You guys have enough light to write by? I hope. I'm not really sure what I'm doing with the mechanics here, so I hope this is okay. So we're going to play a little game. Um, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> um, you're going to close your eyes, and this is when my accomplice comes in and takes your purses and your briefcase and stuff. You're, when I say so, you're going to close your eyes, okay? Um, and then I'm going to say a word. And keep your eyes shut, but what I want you to do is whatever image comes to your mind's eye, 
then open up your eyes and write down what you saw. Try to be as detailed as possible, okay? If there's certain colors or shapes or textures involved, try to be as detailed as you can. But this is this idea of idea to image and image to idea, okay? So again, you're going to close your eyes and then I'm going to say a word. Um, and then I'll ask you to close your eyes again. We'll do it twice, and then I'm going to take um, some, and some unsuspecting people in the front rows, and I'm going to subject them to another experiment of this sort. So, okay, so, so close your eyes. Mercy. Write down whatever image comes to mind. It can just be a sentence, a phrase, a fragment. Doesn't matter. Just be detailed. All right, you ready for number two? Okay, close your eyes. Trouble. So, so what are some of the things that you um, that you saw? Yeah. Thanksgiving turkey. Which is which? Which for 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 mercy? For mercy, you saw. Thanksgiving turkey being pardoned by the president. Oh, there. For mercy, he saw the Thanksgiving turkey being pardoned by the president. Yeah. What did you see? I saw a mother and a child with guilt and forgiveness. A mother and a child and some guilt and some forgiveness involved. Yeah, yeah. I was asking for mercy before a beheading. You were asking for mercy before a beheading. I'm so glad you're still here. <laughs> it worked. All right. What about for uh, trouble? Yeah, John. GOP debates. GOP debates <laughs> for trouble. Interesting, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. My brother For trouble, you saw a picture of your brother when he was little. Yeah, I was, I was probably, yeah. 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 Uh, dark clouds approaching the earth in a puddle. Oh, nice. Dark clouds near approaching in a puddle for trouble. Yeah, what did you see? An uneven sidewalk. An uneven sidewalk. <laughs> okay. He saw an uneven sidewalk for trouble. Brilliant, right? So how refreshing to see that your minds, all of your minds went to different places with that. And you're given, you're given a verbal abstraction, right? And your mind wants to, okay, I told you to do it, it's true. But the mind often wants to do this. The mind wants to work in associative ways and make those kind of connections. And sometimes I think in writing, um, what's really important is we, sometimes we're so keen on the big picture that we sometimes forget about the way our minds sort of naturally tend to work. And paying attention to these kind of associations, I think, can be helpful. Now, this is going to be kind of hit or miss, so we're going to do something else now. We just went from idea to image. Now we're going to go from the senses towards idea, much like Nazim Hikmet does in that poem, It's This Way. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes again, and there will be a sound, and you will do the same thing. You will, you will write down whatever it is that you see with that sound, okay? So close your eyes. Sometimes I think um, if my mother could see me now standing in front of a crowd of people um, shaking a little tin of Earl Grey tea, she'd be like, what happened to that child? What's going on? Um, anyway, so it's Earl Grey tea, but it doesn't matter if you know what it is. So what are, what are some of the things that, um, that people saw? Say 
was a fine badger. I love that. I tell you, yeah, I just thought of, when you said that, I then thought of like Scooby Doo with laughs. What else? Jingle bells and twinkling lights in December before Christmas in New York. Jingle bells and twinkling lights in December before Christmas in New York. All that. Yeah, let me see. A foreign beggar squatting on the street with a couple of change. Beggar with a couple of change. All right, great. Yeah. One thing more. Yeah, let me see. Yeah. A typewriter in a smoking newspaper office. A typewriter in a smoking newspaper office. These are awesome. Yeah. Fox matches. Box of matches? That was close. <laughs> yeah, I'll look at that. She shakes the tiny drum as the rain pours, pellets melting all over the room as a human Jamaican sun peers into the window. Oh my god, you wrote a whole poem. <laughs> That's amazing. You should be up here. That was great. Thank you. All right. So this idea of the mind going back and forth and that, um, yes, you, in a sense, it's not really that you heard something. You used your senses to come up with an idea, but, but it kind of works that way. It's the reverse of when you have the word and then you see something. But this is sort of a trans-sensory kind of thing that you, that you did. All right, let's go back to your, um, to your packets. Um, and I want to look at two poems before... Um, we do our final exercise. Well, actually, you know what? There was one more thing that I wanted to do. There was one more thing I wanted to do. Um, two, I'm going to have these two volunteers in the front. All right, you, you guys get to watch this, unfortunately, because it's too big a room. But you're going to close your eyes, and I'm going to I'm going to put something under your nose. Okay, I'm going to tap you on the on the right shoulder. Okay, uh, and that's going to tell you that something's there. So I want you to inhale and get the scent, and then whatever image you get. You ready, Zach? Here, right, close your eyes. Okay. So they're going to be our. They're going to speak for the whole crowd. It's a sense of smell. What did you guys see, Zach? What did you see? Saw my aunt giving me chocolate kisses as a kid. You saw Zach saw his aunt giving him chocolate kisses. What's your name? Sean. What did you say? My struggling lavender plant. <laughs> struggling lavender plant is what you saw. All right. And again, here, error, right? It's sandalwood soap. But are they wrong? No. It's, it's a scent, and it's what, you know, it, it immediately sort of gets located, and the mind wants to make some kind of sense out of it. So, all right. Onward. Page six. Yvonne Boland has this wonderful poem, The Black Lace Fan My Mother Gave Me. And I want you to hold that page for a second, all right? And this is where you're going to meditate and daydream for a minute, okay? Um, I couldn't ask you all to bring this thing with you, but it's very important. I need you to come up with an object. Even though you don't have it here with you, I want you to think about something you have at home. You might actually have it with you if you're, if you're somebody who likes to carry around a totem or a talisman or something that's very valuable. What I'd like you to meditate on for about two or three minutes, okay, is some object that you have received that has just amazing emotional resonance and value for you. It can be something that maybe a parent who's no longer with us gave you. It might be something that a childhood friend who moved away gave you a simple candy store ring and you've kept that for years because it reminded you of that person. Um, any kind of object that you have received that reminds you of a particular person or place, perhaps, okay, um, that you no longer have in your life. Okay? Or that that presence is not the same. But that object sort of it has resonance for you. Does that make sense? Can you think about something? Take a minute or so. And in your mind's eye, just sit with that object for a minute. You're going to be playing with it in a couple of minutes after we read these two poems. But I want you to sit with that object for a minute and let that resonance sort of um, echo a little bit. We're going to come back to those objects in a couple of minutes. 
Here's a poem by Yvonne Boland uh, on page six of your packet. It is entitled, The Black Lace Fan My Mother Gave Me. It was the first gift he ever gave her. Uh, for, by the way, forgive my French, it's awful. It was the first gift he ever gave her, buying it for five francs in the galleries in pre-war Paris. It was stifling. A starless drought made the nights stormy. They stayed in the city for the summer. They met in cafes. She was always early. He was late. That evening, he was later. They wrapped the fan. He looked at his watch. She looked down at the Boulevard des Capuchines. She ordered more coffee. She stood up. The streets were emptying. The heat was killing. She thought the distance smelled of rain and lightning. These are wild roses, appliqued on silk by hand, darkly picked, stitched boldly, quickly. The rest is tortoise shell and has the reticent, clear patience of its element. It is a worn-out underwater boolean, and it keeps, even now, an inference of its violation. The lace is overcast, as if the weather it opened for and offset had entered it. The past is an empty cafe terrace, an airless dusk before thunder, a man running, and no way now to know what happened then, none at all, unless, of course, you improvise. The blackbird on this first sultry morning in summer, finding buds, worms, fruit, feels the heat. Suddenly, she puts out her wing, the whole full flirtatious span of it. That wonderful moment at the end of that poem when that wing comes in, like, very much like the fan. Flip the page and let's talk about Charles Simic's poem, Classic Ballroom Dances. I love the Mark Irwin poem, but we'll also, you know, for time's sake, we're going to skip that, I think. Classic Ballroom Dances by Charles Simic. Grandmothers who wring the necks of chickens. Old nuns with names like Teresa, Marianne, who pull schoolboys by the ear. The intricate steps of pickpockets working the crowd of the curious at the scene of an accident. The slow shuffle of the evangelist with a sandwich board. The hesitation of the early morning customer peeking through the window grill of a pawn shop. The weave of a little kid who is walking to school with eyes closed. And the ancient lovers cheek to cheek on the dance floor of the Union Hall where they also hold charity raffles on rainy Monday nights of an eternal November. I love the, the weird playfulness of this poem, right? And, you know, we're set up with this expectation that we're going to hear about things like waltzes and other, and other classic ballroom dances, and then you have grandmothers um, ringing the necks of chickens and little kids trying to find their way, weaving their way to school with their eyes closed. But then that wonderful final stanza that actually comes back to the thing that was the topic of sorts, that coming back feels kind of crucial, just as the play and the exploration of these other things that are like dances, that can be likened to dances. The metaphoric mind engaging in that play, in that error, in that otherness, and then coming back to the actual thing itself. It's a little bit opposite of the Bolin poem, right, who makes more of a narrative of that situation, imagining or, or what she knows, or imagining the story of what's going on, and then that wonderful shift at the end into the metaphor of the starling wing, because um, the mind needs somewhere to go. The mind likes to find its likenesses. So let's go back to your objects now. And what I'd like you to do for the next couple of minutes, about three, four minutes, we're going to write. So in your mind's eye, I need you to picture that object again, that object of great resonance, of great emotional import for you. All right? Um, I want you to just write, and this is, this, you know, pure prose here. You go left to right, margin to margin as you write. Um, I want you to describe that object as objectively as you can. I know it's tricky, you don't have it here in front of you. But as objectively as you can with your senses, okay? You know, obviously what color is it? Does it have a kind of sound? One, one thing that I have is an old wind chime bell that my mother gave me, uh, that my father and mother gave me, that I still have, and that sound is very resonant. Um, does it have a scent, okay? Is it that struggling lavender plant? Okay. Um, what does it feel like in terms of its, of its texture or its after its touch? Um, and, and weirdly, even think about what it might taste like. 
Okay? Now, when I do this in class and we actually have the object, it's the moment that I fear most because I'm, I'm worried that all of a sudden security is going to come in and see a bunch of poets licking objects, and I'm going to get in trouble. Provost will hear from that. So about three minutes or so of just pure descriptive writing. Use your senses to objectively describe your object. All right? See what you come up with for a couple minutes, and then we're going to play with that. Obviously, you're going you're to come up with some good adjectives that help describe this noun, this thing. Take another 15 or 20 seconds or so to finish up whatever thought you have, whatever last descriptive ideas you're putting down. Everybody can see this. You're going to make a little chart here. What I, what I need you to do from your writing right now 
on a piece of scrap paper, separate piece of paper, is um, across the top, you're going to make a row, and you're going to select four adjectives from what you just wrote. So go through what you just wrote descriptively. And just circle, don't, don't spend too much time, because it's an 11th, it's, you know, it's an 11th hour after all, we don't have you know, hours and hours. Go through what you just wrote and just pick four adjectives that work descriptively. If you can pick different ones in different senses, that's great, but four adjectives that you use to describe your object. Right? And put them across the top of your page like so. And then what you're gonna do I'll give you a So, as my little model, I have up here, very hard to see, I have a, a pair of what were my grandfather's admiral stars. So this is my object that I carry around with that has great important gradient um, And so I came up with these adjectives, sharp, symmetrical, silver, and reflective. And now, you're going to start to do what I've just done. Instead of three nouns for each, just pick two, but let's say, so sharp is the first one, right? You're going to take that first adjective that you have in that diagram, and you're going to come up with two nouns that fit with that adjective. Those nouns won't have anything to do with your actual object. It's just things in the world that, that go with that adjective. So I picked the word tack, and I was thinking about math class, for God knows what reason, and I thought of compass, and we're going to compass. So tack and compass were two, two nouns that I came up with for sharp. Uh, for symmetrical, I came up with an anemone and a fern. For silver, I came up with tinsel and metal, and for reflective, a mirror and, and a pool. So I want you to come up with two nouns. I noticed there are three up there, but for time's sake, come up with two nouns from the world uh, for each of your adjectives. And if you get stuck, this is the fun part about being an auditorium, ask your neighbor. Say, oh my god, Zach, give me something that's silver in the world. So take a couple minutes and do that. So for reflective, I came up with a philosopher. And that's obviously not for the reflect, physical reflection that somebody who is reflected and, and thoughtful. So yes, you can, you can, you can play with things. <laughs> so two nouns for each adjective.
they're wonderful uh, poems to model if you want to generate something off of a particular object. What we're going to do for the last 15 minutes or so, though, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to be a little bit tutorial, and you'll bear with me. Hopefully, this will get you started all right, on, on, on a particular poem, uh, or maybe even a prose piece um, that works this way, this bridge, the shuttle line working back and forth in metaphor. And the idea is that, of course, you can talk about this descriptive, you can talk about the object that you have and come up with a wonderful piece of writing that has emotional resonance. Because for you, you pick something that's meaningful for you, right? But then how do we blossom it, right? How do we make it bigger? And, and this little game sometimes allows us to discover some surprising things that allow us to talk about our topic with a little more flourish, uh, a little more breath, a little more layering. That's why Cynic's poem is so much fun because it brings in the outside world in ways that are kind of fresh and unexpected uh, to that original topic. So what I want you to do now is um, you're going to, everybody, you have your little chart here, all right? I'm going to get rid of the chart. Um, for a title. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna copy, appropriate, uh, as Yvonne Boland did. So she has a very descriptive grounding title for that poem, right? The Black Lace Stand My Mother Pity, right? That's the title of the poem. So you're gonna have a very straightforward title. So whatever your object is that you chose, somehow create a title that echoes what Boland does with her, with, with the fan. Okay. And of course, this is a draft. It's a working title. So no pressure to come up with anything brilliant. You've got your title, all right? Black Lace Fan My Mother Gave Me, or something along that line. Now, your first stanza or paragraph, or however you want to write this, it can be in prose, it can be in lines, it doesn't matter. I'm going to time you. Your first stanza, your first paragraph, you're going to do a meditation on how you can make a connection between your first noun and the object, okay? So the first stanza, the first resonant noun that you chose, okay? So in my case, what I had up on the board was attack. Somehow, all right, the way Charles Simic starts his poem, Grandmothers Who Ring the Necks, right? That's his first classic ballroom dance, all right? What's the, you're going to pick your first resonant noun from your list, and you're going to meditate on that a little bit. Sometimes it helps in these exercises if you start the line with just like or just as, because then it goes back and forth. You might have a struggle here. It might be hard for you to sort of describe your grandfather's admiral stars and using a tack, a thumbtack, okay? But the way that it has to secure itself into the epaulette, the way this has secured itself into my life, okay? I'm working with my mind to try to come up with something resonant, okay, about a tack and how it might relate to this. Don't worry so much about meaning or making sense right now. But for the next two minutes, you're going to write about your first noun under the umbrella of your title of your object, your resonant object. See what you come up with, and I'll give you two minutes to do that. And again, if you want to start your first line with, it's just like or just as to sort of have a more explicit comparison taking place. See what you come up with. And don't cross off. Give the editor a day off. 
a couple seconds and finish up whatever ideas in your mind. Finish your lines or your sentences for now. Okay, skip a line, make some space. Your second stanza, your second paragraph. Guess what? Your second now, meditate. Meditate on that second object out in the world, again, under the umbrella, and all the contextual things that you're thinking about with the person, place, that maybe your object brings to mind. So your second noun for two minutes. Okay, finish up whatever your current idea is. Skip a line, make some space. And the third noun. Your third stanza. That third noun in the world. Again, if it helps to start with the prompt just like or just as, play with that.
finish up that last thought or idea. Make some space, and in your last stanza or paragraph, you can now engage directly with the object. What you might want to do as well, since I'm assuming that your objects are deeply associated or deeply connected to a particular person or place or a good time in your life, go ahead and talk directly to that, either the object or the person or the place or the time, to finish up this little draft of the so you're directly, you're being a little you're directly addressing your object. You're coming back to your object now. And any resonances that you want to address are related to that object. Again, another two minutes.